0: Hi, and welcome to this latest episode from 1914 to 1918war.com, or perhaps as I should now call it, News from the Front. This is a bit of a rebrand, I'm going to take the podcast in a slightly new direction, focusing a little bit beyond the uh, traditional First World War uh, that we've been looking at for the last few years, and taking in wider expanse of military history, just because it interests me and I, I hope it interests you too. Of course, having said that, I'm now going to undermine that slightly by focusing on the First World War again, Uh, looking at uh, the propaganda war, or the information space, as we would call it these days, I suspect. I do hope you enjoy it, and uh, if you find the area interesting, there's a full bibliography in the show notes, uh, which will point you in the direction of the sources I've used. Okay, let's get on with the show. Everything you hold for a is in <laughs> <laughs> Propaganda. It never occurred to me that newspapers or statesmen could lie. In this article, I'm going to take a journey through the use of propaganda during the Great War. I'll be mainly focusing on the British effort, but I'll be including aspects of the German, French and American experience too. I've mainly focused on efforts made to influence public opinion for domestic and overseas audiences. This is one of those subjects that could very easily turn into an entire book. So I've excluded some aspects of the information war. For example, I don't get into the vast subject of each nation's efforts to recruit men into their armed forces or the Bolsheviks' use of propaganda in Russia, for example. Maybe another time. The outbreak of the war saw the belligerent nations attempt to control the information domain in multiple areas, looking to influence public opinion, maintain support for the prosecution of the war, influence foreign peoples and governments, and erode the fighting spirit of their enemies at the outbreak of the war, the first sign of what we would call from our modern perspective the information war was the rapid imposition of censorship across the media. As a blunt instrument, censorship, just stopping information from being reported, was the easiest step and therefore the first thing imposed. Whether originating from the British Defence of the Realm Act with its infamous D-notices, or the widespread French censorship structure across the national and regional newspaper industries, censorship rapidly became a fact of life. Throughout the war, censorship was used to stop publication of news relating to military disasters, to delay publication until long after an event had uh, passed to lessen the news value, and to conceal the true nature of fighting in the trenches. Moving beyond censorship, the next step in the information war was to attempt to actively manage the news and public sentiment across target audiences. Across Europe, initial efforts at news management all took the same form, with the armed forces setting up ways for them to provide military updates to the press, who would then relay them in the news to the wider public. The German government was ahead of the game when it came to propaganda in the First World War. Under Bismarck, the government had established the Pressamt Bureau, to disseminate information relating to German government affairs, beginning with daily briefings about the situation of the war. Then, as the German armies marched across northern Europe in 1914, this established organisation was well positioned to flood the world with material representing the German point of view and objectives. However, after this promising start, things went downhill fast not least due to the efforts of the British response in countering the German approach, and, as an unexpected byproduct, establishing the template for information warfare that nations have used ever since. Allied to the Germans, the Austrians established their Kriegspressquartier, or War Press Office, to issue bulletins about the progress of their armies, which I imagine must have got pretty depressing rather quickly. German propaganda against its enemies was hindered by two main factors. Firstly, as the undoubted invader, sending its armies into Belgium and France, there was little chance that German justification of her actions would gain traction on the stage of world opinion. To some extent, all the efforts made before the war to present Germany's views on global politics, particularly her desire for colonies, were largely undone. Secondly, a heavy-handed approach and a tendency towards pushing messages that were tone-deaf and often blustering in their nature tended to diminish German efforts and create space for the British to catch up. On the outbreak of war, a flood of pro-German material was unleashed on the United States via the German-American societies, but this approach tended to be ineffective as obvious propaganda tends to be. It seems that people just don't like to be told what to think. A more subtle German approach that continued throughout the war was to provide funding to potentially friendly foreign newspapers through investments or direct payments from front men to influence the news agenda. For example, a scandal enveloped the newspaper Le Journales when it uh, emerged that it had accepted around 10 million francs that had originated in Germany. Focusing on the pacifist Le Pay or the anti-government Bonnet Rouge, newspapers, these cases led to the formation of a journalist's union and the adoption of a code of conduct that included prohibitions on receiving payments. The code of conduct was the first of its kind anywhere in the world. In terms of official organisation, the French set up its information section of the military intelligence division in October 1914, focusing initially on editing and issuing military communiques. The organisation was remodelled as the Information Service for the Armies, under General Nivelle, and began to publish newspapers and various accounts of the war. Notably, the French were the first to allow accredited war correspondents access to the front lines to report on what they saw. Up until this point, reports had solely come from officers within the military. Then, in January 1916, the Maison de la Presse was created modelled on a similar basis to the British propaganda structures, but was never as effective as it tended to be subject to intense political infighting that distracted from the job in hand. At the beginning of the war, an absence of official information in France led to outlandish stories being created to fill the vacuum. A direct consequence of this lack of official communication meant that the truth sometimes came as a bit of a surprise. For example, the extent of the static front was a surprise to many who had assumed from newspaper reports that the Germans were still being driven back as a part of mobile warfare. One characteristic of the disorganised approach was that newspapers tended to publish overly optimistic or in places made up accounts of heroism, but contradicted them with gruesome images of the dead. These inconsistencies point to ad hoc and localised censorship decisions. Luckily or unluckily, depending on your viewpoint, the task of motivating the home front was easier for the French on account of the obvious existential threat that the Germans had caused by invading and fighting on their territory. A more challenging aspect of the French effort were those measures taken to keep French citizens who were under German occupation abreast of their government's approach to eventually liberating them. Whatever the efficacy of the newspaper industry, one thing is clear. There was a voracious demand for news about the war, and this is shown in the general increase in newspaper circulation during the war across the world. Of course, some newspapers did better than others. The Daily Mail in the UK did better than, for example, The Telegraph. Worldwide, Les Matins, the Berliner Tageblatt, and the New York Times all saw significant increases in their circulations. However, the industry also faced headwinds, such as declining advertising revenues, and later in the war, rationing of newsprint paper, which led to thinner papers with less space for both news or ads. Later in the war, when the Americans had entered, they set up their press bureau organisation along similar lines to the French, and in fact worked very closely with them. In fact, Clemenceau and General Pershing were so close to each other on the subject of censorship that in July 1918, Clemenceau wrote to Pershing saying Any suggestion that you may make to ensure a closer collaboration between the two censorships in order to obtain a better result will be accepted by us at once and in this matter, as in all others, you may count upon my most devoted cooperation. Now let's focus in on the British effort. The Press Bureau was created on the 7th of August 1914 to handle communication and the approach to reporting the news in the newspapers. To this end, the following edict was issued to editors about where the boundaries lay. The names of ships should not be reported, nor a. movements of ships, troops, aircraft or war material, fortifications, defence works, arsenals, dockyards, oil depots, ammunition stores, and electric light installations, without first obtaining the sanction of the Admiralty or the War Office respectively. In fact, no information should be given bearing on naval or military movements, as such information, however remote it might appear to be, would probably be of advantage to the enemy, and therefore prejudicial to national interests." At the outbreak of the war, the British had no formal organisation for propaganda operations. The unmistakable impression is that along with much of the rest of society, the government wasn't ready for the war it had to fight, and that included the need to get official viewpoints across for an extended duration. However, in one area, the British were ahead of the game. Within hours of the declaration of war, the ship Talconia had severed the undersea cables that connected Germany directly with the United States. This planned action meant that Germany was immediately at the disadvantage in the most important area of the propaganda war. Now, all communication from the continent had to go through the UK, or by the more circuitous routes via neutral Portugal and Scandinavia, routes that were slower and cost the sender more. As such, the British version of events, carefully censored, either officially or self centered tended to predominate in the all-important American market. American journalists on the continent, in competition with each other and the British news providers, tended to use the UK cables due to the need to get their material across the Atlantic by the quickest route and to avoid being trumped by their rivals. Elsewhere, the British approach was less organised. At the war's outbreak, the need to mobilise public opinion was considered relatively unimportant on the assumption that the war would be fought by the professional armed forces and be over quickly. As such, the effort was left to voluntary organisations under the general coordination of the Central Committee for National Patriotic Organisations, or the CCNPO. Disparate voluntary organisations like Concerned Anglican Clergy, the Council of Loyal British Subjects and the Fight for Right movement were coordinated by the committee with the twin goals of keeping British public opinion on side and motivated and to express the British point of view to the neutral countries of the world. The committee was very much an establishment organisation, with Prime Minister Asquith as voluntary president and other luminaries such as Lord Rosebery and A.J. Balfour as Vice-Presidents. The whole thing was chaired by Sir Henry Cust, a distinguished editor of the Pall Mall Gazette. Under his leadership, famous and distinguished personages were encouraged to write or give lectures about the war, and Britain's position on the matters of the day. This organisation produced over 100 different leaflets and pamphlets during the first three years of the war, and provided a useful conduit for materials originating in other government propaganda organisations. The CCNPO was useful to the government, as it was dissociated from central government functions, but given its leadership, couldn't really be seen as an independent voice. However, it didn't take long for the government to realise that an amateur organisation probably wasn't going to cut it, given the scale of propaganda effort it realised might be required and further organisations were put in place. They were thrown together on an almost ad hoc basis. The problem was that no one expected to fight a long war, so why bother setting up the kind of machinery that, with hindsight, was going to be needed? As such, the government approach was characterised by short-term thinking, and ad hoc carbuncles bolted onto existing structures. Instead of thinking, how should we design this? The question was, how can we best fit this new need into our existing structures? The pressing need was to engage with foreign opinion and two new organisations were set up. The News Department was set up under the control of Sir Edward Grey at the Foreign Office and the Neutral Press Committee was set up at the Home Office, working alongside the Press Bureau which managed censorship activities. The News Department's role was to handle the increased demand for information about the war from foreign correspondents who were based in London. Acting as an information service, the department tried to provide official factual information to the press, encouraging them to publish the information provided with discretion. Even at this early stage, the British approach can be seen as the news department tried to avoid straying from the facts. The approach to what these days would be referred to as information management was to avoid discussion of who was in the right, not to exhort the neutral powers to support Britain and to avoid direct attacks on the enemy. Instead, the approach revolved around providing factual, if selective, information that supported the British perspective, and would lead those consuming the news to draw their own conclusions in the right direction. The second of the two official organisations, the Neutral Press Committee, was created on the 11th of September 1914, under the direction of G. H. Mayer, who had previously been the editor of the Daily Chronicle. As you can see here, there's a common theme of putting editors from the press in charge of these organisations. Mayer established his new organisation in line with four main areas of activity. Promoting sales of British newspapers. Providing news via telegraph and cables. Disseminating propaganda to newspapers and journals that supported the British viewpoint and enabling the exchange of news services between foreign newspapers and their foreign counterparts. Then, in later 1915, Mayer's remit was extended to include activities involving Allied countries. The next, and certainly the most important and most interesting, component of the British propaganda effort was the establishment of the War Propaganda Bureau, primarily aimed at presenting the British position in Allied and neutral nations especially in the most important neutral party, the United States. Reacting to the scale and assertive nature of the German propaganda effort towards the United States, the British cabinet saw the need for a department specifically aimed at allied, neutral and empire nations. Charles Masterman, MP, the chairman of the National Insurance Committee, a liberal politician and the chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, was given the job. Colloquially known as Wellington House after the block of flats it used as its offices, this organisation was to represent the main British propaganda agency for much of the war. When Masterman started his new role, it seems he co-opted both the offices of the National Insurance Committee and various of their staff to work on his new project. Wellington House was largely a secret organisation, and was careful not to issue propaganda directly, instead sponsoring material through third parties such as publishing houses, so that the material appeared to have been produced independently. Masterman was clear that propaganda was only effective when it wasn't seen as propaganda, and took steps such as using the NIC offices to ensure that Wellington House would remain largely unknown. Whilst this approach was mainly intended to make the propaganda more effective, propaganda was also the kind of unsavoury practice that could easily become a political issue, so discretion was preferred to protect the government. Beginning operations on the 2nd of September 1914, Masterman invited 25 of Britain's greatest authors to think about how the British position could be best served. Luminaries such as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the writer of the Sherlock Holmes stories, J.M. Barry, Peter Pan, H.G. Wells, The Time Machine and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, G.K. Chesterton, The Man Who Was Thursday, and Thomas Hardy, Tessa of the D'Urbervilles, met to, as their first agenda item, respond to a letter published by German academics justifying the invasion of Belgium. On the 18th of September, the British response was published in the Times, calling for the English-speaking race, to rally to the ideals of Western Europe against the rule of blood and iron. A subsequent meeting, bringing together the editors of the leading newspapers, such as The Times, The Daily Mail, The Daily News and The Standard, agreed on some core principles for the effort. Censorship was to be minimised. The diplomatic service was to be encouraged to use journalists to help with refuting falsehoods in the foreign press. Journalists reporting on the empire and neutral countries should be supported, and a government coordinator should be appointed to act as a conduit for government news. These principles would help to steer the organisation towards the goals that Masterman set. These were getting neutrals on side, justifying Britain's position, keeping allies friendly, and motivating hatred of the enemy. For these activities, there was no more important audience than the United States, Masterman was convinced that the strident approach adopted by German propaganda was generally ineffective. Instead, he focused his organisations on fostering a right view of the actions of the British government since the commencement of the war in key opinion formers across the United States. This approach was interesting, as rather than assuming that the audience was the entire United States public, Masterman reasoned that by influencing opinion formers, the British message would gain their authority when it was passed on to the general public. As such, teachers, politicians, industrialists and writers would find themselves the targets of British help in understanding the war and the British point of view. In today's terms, I guess we could say that Masterman's approach was to engage in an influencer marketing campaign. This was obviously a delicate operation, though. It would have been far too easy to turn the opinion formers against the British if the nature of the material they received became known. As such, materials were often sent out directly to the targets with a covering letter that made it seem like the materials were being provided as a personal favour from one member of the intellectual elite to another, an approach designed to flatter the recipients as much as convince them that the materials were more neutral than they were. The subtlety of British operations was in marked contrast to the heavy-handed approach adopted by the Germans. Whether it was the violation of Belgium's neutrality, we had to because France is too well defended, the execution of Edith Cavell, she might be a woman and a nurse but she was a spy so we shot her, or the sinking of the Lusitania, we warned the American public that travelling on British ships was dangerous so they had it coming the German approach managed to achieve a level of tone-deafness that with hindsight is quite remarkable. The execution of Edith Cavell is a case in point. Cavell had lived in Brussels since 1907, where she'd successfully managed a nursing school. On the outbreak of the war and the invasion of Belgium by the Germans, she'd decided to stay at her school and help combatants of both sides. Now under German occupation and aware that the occupiers would take a dim view of anyone hiding Entente soldiers, she hid two British soldiers before arranging for guides who could get them into neutral Holland. This initial adventure soon grew, and uh, in collaboration with the Belgian prince and princess de Croix, an escape route for Entente soldiers was established, with Cavell's nursing school as one of the safe houses where soldiers were sheltered until it was safe to spirit them over the border. The escape route was successful until the point where it wasn't. On the 31st of July 1915, the escape route's chief organiser, Philippe Balk, was betrayed to the Germans. This led the Germans to arrest Cavell just six days later. She readily confessed to her part in the escape route, and her confession was written up for her in German, a language she couldn't read. Her confession made it clear that she had helped to smuggle able-bodied French and British men out, so that they could join or rejoin their armies. In fact, many of the men she had helped had been wounded, but this wasn't a point made in her confession document. Thirty five people, including Cavell, were tried for running the escape route, charged with treason against the German state. Despite a spirited defence from a Brussels attorney, the court found twenty six of the defendants guilty. Cavell was executed on the 12th of October, 1915, and her death promptly became a huge news story worldwide as an example of German inhumanity. Not only was Cavell a woman, but also a nurse, it's hard to think of a worse combination from a public relations perspective. The story became more emotive when newspapers in Britain and United States ran stories claiming that the men of the firing squad had deliberately fired to one side to spare the woman from her gruesome death, and when she'd fainted, she'd been shot by a German officer while she lay defenceless. This account of her death was actually untrue. Cavell had likely died immediately, struck by a bullet in the forehead and multiple bullets to her chest, but it did make a fine news story. This event along with the story of the execution of the patriotic Captain Friat, executed for trying to ram a German U-boat. I covered him briefly in an earlier podcast. These were used as examples of Germans' inhumanity, with the events being widely published and publicised to spread the word. One thing is certain. Once these events had occurred, they played into the propagandists' hands, and the world was not allowed to forget the incident. Take for example how Cavell's death was subsequently commemorated on a stamp that proclaimed Remember Edith Cavell murdered October 12th 1915 and in a song for voice and piano containing such lyrics as The world is hushed, there is a sigh When she is told that she must die A martyr to the right she fell Peace to the nurse, Edith Cavell Putting aside the dubious quality of the lyric writing The continued reminders meant that the Germans were never able to move on, or as we would say these days, reset the agenda. And Wellington House played its part in keeping those memories fresh. Another publication that Wellington House helped to spread was the Bryce Report into alleged German atrocities in Belgium. At the outbreak of the war, Prime Minister Asquith requested that Wellington House take a good look at any alleged outrages, the maltreatment of civilians and breaches of law and established usages of war that could be found to bolster the British position. The subsequent Bryce report was compiled from interviews with refugees who had fled from the German army as it swept all from its path, and from reports from a team of reporters sent out before the front line solidified. Interviews with Allied soldiers rounded off the information-gathering stage. There was little opportunity to fact-check the stories that were gathered, and the subjects were hardly likely to underplay the ordeal they'd been through. Those running from an advancing army were unlikely to be the most reliable of sources, and were prone to embellishing stories and to recounting second-hand myths as truth. The result was an extensive catalogue of depravity and horror, which is exactly the kind of sensational material that newspapers and their audiences love. The report was written by a committee chaired by Viscount James Bryce, who Masterman believed would provide the necessary gravitas and authority to the publication. After all, what was the point of compiling a list of horror stories if no one would believe them? James Bryce had been Britain's ambassador to the United States between 1907 and 1913, and he had many friends in the United States, and had been deeply affected by the plight of Belgium. As such, given Bryce's reputation, when the report appeared, it came with a natural authority and, despite the word alleged in the title, seems to have been largely accepted as fact. Wellington House, seeing an opportunity, assisted in ensuring that the 320-page report was available in large quantities and was translated into a range of languages. Masterman instructed the committee formed to investigate the atrocities to conduct a broad investigation of the alleged outrages, the maltreatment of Belgian civilians and which breaches of law were broken by the Germans. The report was completed and published in the spring of 1915. The report was comprised of eyewitness accounts of German atrocities and went to great lengths to establish its trustworthiness in the opening pages. This excerpt gives an impression of the tone. The experienced lawyers who took the depositions tell us that they passed from the same stage of doubt into the same stage of conviction. They also began their work in a sceptical spirit, expecting to find much of the evidence coloured by passion, or prompted by an excited fancy, but they were impressed by the general moderation and the matter-of-fact level-headedness of the witnesses. We have interrogated them, particularly regarding some of the most startling and shocking incidents which appeared in the evidence laid before us, and where they expressed a doubt, we have excluded the evidence, admitting it as regards the cases in which they stated that the witnesses seemed to them to be speaking the truth, and that they themselves believed the incidents referred to have happened. It is for this reason that we have inserted, among the depositions printed in the appendix, several cases which we might otherwise have deemed scarcely credible. However, if the reader was not inclined to believe the, experienced lawyers who gathered the evidence... The preamble also states that many of the episodes were taken from German primary sources. This next quote is from the preamble of the Bryce Report. It appears to be the custom in the German army for soldiers to be encouraged to keep diaries and to record in them the chief events of the day. A good many of these diaries were collected on the field when British troops were advancing over ground which had been held by the enemy, were sent to headquarters in France and dispatched thence to the war office in England. They passed into the possession of the Prisoner of War Information Bureau and were handed by it to our secretaries. They have been translated with great care. We have inspected them and are absolutely satisfied of their authenticity. The report then goes into a repetitive catalogue of various atrocities, detailing locations and dates for executions, rapes, mutilations and assorted other crimes. One theme seems to be the use of civilians as human shields. On the 24th of August, men, women and children were actually pushed into the front of the German positions outside Mons. The witness speaks of 16 to 20 women, about a dozen children and half a dozen men being there. When the report was released, Wellington House worked to ensure that it would be covered in the major newspapers by sending out copies to the various editors. The New York Times duly ran the headline, German atrocities are proved Fides price committee and cited James Bryce's reputation. The effect of Bryce's known integrity and reputation as a historian led to reports from American reporters that suggested that they weren't seeing the same evidence of atrocities to be downplayed or ignored. Okay, I think we will break at that point. We're nearly halfway through this particular subject. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it so far. In the next episode we'll look at the German response to uh, these atrocity stories, look at how uh, propaganda evolved during the war further, and uh, some other aspects of the information war that was going on. do hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, if you want any further reading there's the bibliography in the uh, show notes. And uh, a reminder to go over to the Substack and search for News for the Front and subscribe to that so that you get the transcripts and other things that I put out on that channel. Thanks a lot for listening and I look forward to you joining me next episode. Bye bye.